0: Welcome to You Are Good, of Feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my fabulous co-host, Sarah Marshall. We will be talking about Empire Records with our great friend, Nico Stratus. First, I just want to let you know that You Are Good, a Feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support via Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus episodes. Our next bonus episode is about Center Stage. A lot of people asked if we would cover Center Stage. We are covering it over on Patreon, where we have over 30... 30... 30 bonus episodes and I like to think that even if you don't like the subject at hand you can have a good time listening to the conversation regardless center stage is written by the writer of empire records by the way so that's neat (laughs) You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. In the show notes, you can find a link to a playlist of songs inspired by our conversation about this movie. Our playlists uh, come out every week. They are inspired by the conversation as much as they're inspired by the movie. They're not just like songs from the movie. They are songs that the movie makes us think about. So you can find that linked in the show notes. And I haven't talked about this in a hot minute, but Carolyn Kendrick, who produces each of our episodes, is also our music director. She's been a bit busy uh, just producing up a storm for the past couple of months, but she has, over the course of the show, made songs that have accompanied some of our episodes. And we put together an album of those songs called The Music of You Are Good Volume One. You can find that streaming on some services and you can support you are good by buying the album on Bandcamp. Links to all these things are in the show notes, as well as links to You Are Good t-shirts. So thank you so much for all your support. You are good, my friend. So we're talking about Empire Records today with our friend Nico Stratus. Nico is a writer. Nico also has a brand new podcast called VA Club. VA, I believe, for various artists, which is a bi-monthly podcast about movie soundtracks. The first episode will be out this very week, and the soundtrack that Nico is covering in the first episode is the Empire Records soundtrack. Beautiful serendipity, or maybe it just happened because we are all we all have Rex Manning Day on our minds. I think that might be the one. Empire Records, for people who are not my age, where this movie was just everywhere when you were coming of age, is a 1995 American coming of age comedy drama film directed by Alan Moyle, who directed Pump Up the Volume, by the way, which we will talk about quite a bit in reference quite a bit in our upcoming Heathers episode. Empire Records stars Anthony Lapaglia. Maxwell Caulfield, Debbie Mazar, Rory Cochran, Johnny Whitworth, Robin Tunney, Renee Zellweger, and of course, Liv Tyler. Let's start talking about Empire Records right now, shall we? Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for doing this thing with us. We really appreciate you. You are good, my friend. Hello, Sarah Marshall.
1: Hello, Alex Steed. What's
0: happening? How are you doing?
1: It's spring. Spring is here, and so we're doing movies about t t teens <laughs> and so we're talking about Empire Records.
0: We have the Gin Blossoms, we have the The, we have guar. We. It's, it's such a delightful time we have
1: Liv tyler bb buell's daughter
0: yeah yeah bb's daughter nashville famous bb buell's daughter
1: (laughs) (laughs) this reminds me of my favorite ever joke on 30 rock where someone mentions steven spielberg to tracy and tracy says kate capshaw's husband
0: (laughs) (laughs) so Our guest today originally is just someone who I adore on the internet and who I've done some other like chit chat stuff in front of audiences a little bit. And we talked about music and stuff and they pitched this movie like 25 years ago, basically, <laughs> and we've been like, we have to wait till it's the right time, the right season, yeah. the right everything. And so I'm so glad that this finally came through. Now, now, mystery guest, can you please reveal who you are
2: and why this is the movie that we're covering? I wish that it could like burst through some sort of like weird audio curtain of some kind. <laughs> Me too. I should have invested in more velvet before I got on the call, because it feels like I need a velvet, I pull it apart, I come out, maybe there's a burst of smoke and one firework.
1: Never blame millennials for killing the velvet industry. We love the velvet industry
2: it's still there it's waiting for us to rediscover it for the first time yeah this is the 25th anniversary of me dming you alex and (laughs) saying can i come in your podcast and talk about empire records a movie that i think nobody cares about anymore (laughs) but i also wrote in spin magazine i wrote an essay about gin blossoms i erroneously called them the gin blossoms in my article and if you've ever wanted innumerable men to email you and say actually it's not the gin blossoms I needed one of those emails, and I got about 3,000 of them, but uh, (laughs) shortly thereafter, you know, we sort of went through it. We've we've gone through a Gin Blossoms renaissance in the last year, and I'd like to think that I kicked it off. Thank God.
0: I hear the Gin Blossoms at, like, a Target or a Kroger, like, three times a week.
1: Alex, you hear Gin Blossoms.
0: (laughs) You're going to get emails, Alex. I hear a
2: I hear a singular gin blossom. the
1: Scottish play. <laughs> one gin blossom. One,
2: so wait, who are you and what do you do? Oh, I didn't introduce myself. I apologize. Uh, my name is Nico Stratus. Uh, I'm a former cigarette smoker and uh, I'm a culture writer. But I think the former smoker is actually the more important part of my resume. <laughs> I write for Spin Magazine and Bitch Magazine and other places. Uh, I wrote about gin blossoms and jackass, the two things of mine that people have actually read.
0: Yeah, I want to say too, we were going to have you, we were going to try to like expedite this by having a Jackass relevant episode because the new Jackass movie <laughs> came out and that didn't work out. But like, can you say briefly, because it's so tied up in this time and tied up in my identity so strongly that I'm really pursuing this. Can you just say quickly, like what your Jackass thesis was and and why you think people responded to that? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, Jackass is funny because I think on face value, it's funny because when I was watching it for writing my piece, my fiance refused to come into the bedroom because we have a projector in our bedroom. And I was watching, I binged all three Jackass movies back to back. And she was just like, I'm not coming anywhere near the bedroom until those movies are done. Hmm. Because she has this idea of it being this like really toxic masculine environment where it's like extremely like homophobic and all these things. And so I wrote this thing about how, you know, it really sort of taught me a different sort of masculinity and it taught me a lot about, you know, how you you can sort of embrace a different kind of masculine energy. And it was never about, you know, a line that I used is it was never, it, you know, it was never about like how big their genitals are. It's really more about how they can destroy them over and over and over again. Like
1: <laughs> If you've seen the new Jackass
2: movie, like the things those guys in their fifties are doing to their genitals is like, you can't possibly like these things. Like if you liked them, you would treat them better.
1: Oh, good point. It's
2: like a you're in like a weird bad relationship. I saw that movie
0: in the theater not long ago and there was like two people behind me on a a date and then two other people behind me on a date and then a family. Oh god. With little children. And I was like I'm curious about the conversations.
2: I wonder if I posted <laughs> this because I had somebody message me from the theater. I had a woman message me on Instagram from a movie theater and was like I'm here right now with my husband and children. They're watching Jackass and I'm reading your article. And I messaged back and said you're reading my article <laughs> right now in the movie theater? Like she had it open on her phone. You know how most people are texting. She's reading my article in Fitch Magazine That's amazing. while her husband and children are watching Jackass. And she was like halfway through the movie. She messaged me and she was like, I get it now. <laughs> I know why I'm here. And it was really nice. That article was was
0: really important to me, too, because I've been telling people for literally decades now like how instrumental watching those specific friendships on screen were to me and changing my idea about what that could look like and so I'm so glad that that's being recognized in some way I'm glad that you brought attention to it and I'm glad I heard on a podcast Johnny Knoxville acknowledged your article
1: (gasps) Uh
2: yeah on NPR (gasps) uh, I started crying because I Uh I had known he read it because Lance Bangs had messaged Mm. me and was like hey really loved your article." I sent it along to Knoxville, Knoxville loved it. And I was like, okay, this is weird. Uh, but he messaged me and was like very sweet about it. And then I was in my house somewhere and I had another friend text me and was like, hey, Johnny Knoxville just gave you a shout out on NPR. That must feel good. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my God. Uh, and then I listened to that episode and I walked into the bedroom. My like fiance was like sitting on the bed and she was like doing some clerical work or something. And I was like vis- visibly emotional. And she was like, oh my God, what happened? And I said, Johnny Knoxville just like mentioned my article on NPR. And she looked at me and she was like, this is very sweet, but also really funny.
1: (laughs) As all the sweetest things are, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: And it's so funny that like these men at this point for what they were, 20 years ago are like now pictures of decency in the media
1: <laughs> it makes total fucking sense right it does.
2: <laughs> it does like looking at it through hindsight and it's funny because i wrote this whole thing like as a trans woman and like and this is how i relate to this media blah 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 blah. and it is funny there's trans people i know that'll be like if i could go back in time i would tell my teenage self that you know X, Y, Z, about gender. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't do any of that. I would just go back and say, hey, when you're 39 years old, Johnny Knoxville is going to give you a shout out on <laughs> NPR on a podcast.
0: <laughs> Sarah, do you want to tell us what Empire Records is and what happens in the
1: movie? Yes. Speaking of the 90s. <laughs> OK, so I'm so excited to be talking about this because I care about Empire Records as well. And I think that it's a movie that is really beloved probably mostly by, like, Xennials, and it's just, like, candy for the Xennial brain, I think. So, okay, Empire Records is about a record store, it's called Empire Records. It's run by a guy named Joe, who's played by So I Married an Axe Murderer's Anthony <laughs> Lapalia, <laughs> who's 36 years old and looks 46. He aged like me (laughs) Like one of those dry aged steaks The most delicious ones We love you And he is so beloved to me because of his role In So I Married an Axe Murderer Where he plays Mike Myers' cop friend Who like wants his boss to Mm. yell at him Because he wants the Serpico (laughs) experience And his boss is played by Alan Arkin And he's always like How are you feeling about that? (laughs) So good, okay So, Joe who runs Empire Records, has this employee. We later find out Foster's son, actually, but that only comes out in the last reel named Lucas, who finds something when he is finally given the responsibility to close up the store for the night. He finds something in Joe's desk that makes him realize that their independent record store is going to be bought by Music Town and become a Music Town franchise. And so he decides to take all of the money from the cash registers that day which is about nine thousand dollars and ride his little moped to atlantic city we see trump stuff premonitions woo (laughs) then he initially doubles his money at craps and then loses all his money and so the next day he shows up he's like well joe we're fucked and it's my fault, and then we also meet our wonderful other cast of characters, which I'm going to try to name in its entirety, but I will miss people. So we have Gina, played by Renee Zellweger, who's a happy go lucky sex sucks-having-around-town lady. She's a bimbo, I guess. And then we have Liv Tyler playing Cory, who is an overachieving high school senior, who is our Jesse Spano, analog she's so excited she's so excited she's so scared (laughs) and today is the day that rex manning who is a gone to seed former TV star played by Maxwell Caulfield of Grease 2, is going to be at the record store selling his records. And Corey has decided to bequeath her virginity upon Rex Manning. But little does she know that this is also the day that AJ, a five years running employee of Empire Records, has decided to tell her that he loves her. So... AJ's been working there since he
0: was, what, 13 years old?
1: (laughs) Yeah, seems like it. Joe, it seems to like employing 13-year-olds.
2: Makes sense. It's interesting
1: that Lucas is like kind of his Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors. Mm, that's
2: true. (laughs) I have innumerable questions about how old everybody in this movie is supposed to be. True,
1: yes. That's so one of the themes here. Because at one point I was like, is Renee Zellweger supposed to be a teenager? The ages of the people that we cast as teenagers are, like, so broad that then if it's not explicitly stated that they are teenagers, you're like, is Gina 25 or is she 16? <laughs> but anyway, also showing up for work, we have Mark, played by Ethan Embry, who loves Guar. And then we have Burko played by Coyote Shivers, who was B.B. Buell's husband at the time. That's all I know about him. And then his name is Coyote Shivers. Big fan of that. He's dressed like he's one of the warriors. Oh, no surprise to anyone.
2: He's Canadian.
1: (laughs) The Canadians always have the best fashion.
0: He also looks like he was on Twin Peaks. Yeah. He was not. He just is of the ilk.
1: James Hurley's friend. (laughs) And then we have Eddie, the pizza guy, who works at the pizza place down the street and shows up a lot. So I don't know. the, The plot is pretty episodic. Everybody shows up to work. Rex Manning shows up to have his record signing and finds out he's beloved only by middle-aged women and that teen girls aren't attracted to him anymore. Oh, and then, how could I forget, we have Deborah, played by Robin Tunney, who shows up after a suicide attempt the night before and immediately gives everyone the finger and then goes to the bathroom and shaves off all her hair. Absolute icon. Love her. (laughs) Everybody finds out that Lucas took the money. He is ordered to not leave the couch. We have a shoplifting attempt made by a character played by Brendan Sexton, who I'm pretty sure was in Welcome to the Dollhouse.
2: Yes. Great answer. <laughs> I feel it's important to mention that it's Brendan Sexton the third.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, because yeah, who knows what Brendan Sexton Jr. was up to. It's
2: not his grandpa. <laughs> of the New York Sextons, I imagine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so they have his shoplifting attempt. They have him in custody on the couch with Lucas for a while until the cops show up and take him away. But he kind of starts a dynamic going with the group that's going to come back later Corey offers her virginity to Rex Manning, who not really respecting the importance of the moment from her perspective is like zip. All right. <laughs> and then she's like disgusted and horrified and runs away. And you're like, yeah, I know you lit a candle and everything, but that, yeah, that wasn't going to. Set the mood effectively enough, and so she runs out onto the roof. And at that very moment, AJ is like, "I must confess my love for you right now, because I set a deadline for myself, and it's this time right now."
0: It's one thirty-seven. <laughs>
1: and she's like, "I can't handle this." And he's like, "Okay, bye. Forget I said anything." And Eddie, the pizza guy, has talked to him about how like they're of different worlds, and she's going to Harvard, and he's. A street rat. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is like the least interesting plot, I think. I feel like the studio mandated. They were like, we need a love story between two normal hot people.
2: We need the Kirkle Cobain type to fall in love with the normie girl.
1: That's exactly what that sweater is. Yes. There's the
0: one shot I posted on Twitter where it's like Robin Tunney and the pizza guy. And he's asking where, whatever, where I forgot how he phrases it, but it's very funny, where sexy Rexy is or something. And he just looks like a total goofus and she looks amazing. And I would have taken that romantic pairing or his romantic pairing with Mark, who he makes a mixtape and brings uh, yeah. hash brownies to. Like a real romantic, real beautiful romantic gesture. Yeah,
2: Rex Manning has more chemistry with the chair he sits on for the signing than AJ and... Liv Tyler, too. He does have
1: chemistry with that chair.
2: The love story between two indescribably, like, I don't know how old they're supposed to be. It seems like they've just met each other maybe that morning.
1: (laughs) I like her rationale, though,
0: is like, I didn't know it was love because it's love plus more. It's love
1: plus bad screenwriting, Liv. That's
2: rough. Yeah. I'd hate to hear that. It's more than love. And then you're just like, okay, well, I'm going home. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long day. i got to go home and invent cry, yeah. You
1: know what I learned that I think is like such a thing in movies of this time is that they wrote it to take place over two days. And then in the edit, they were like, nah, one day.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the plot of this movie sort of feels like if you tried to take high fidelity and take the plot out of it and and, and <laughs> just reintroduce random elements from other movies.
0: Yeah. This is like one of the you said this already that it's episodic, Sarah, but like this is one of those movies where it's like the thing that needs to happen is so irrelevant to the whole movie, which is just like. 23 minute clips it's like 23 yes. individual minute clips of interactions between people which i really like
1: it's a prediction of youtube so it makes sense yeah. that it's aged well <laughs> right and i haven't even mentioned the mcguffin of the whole story which is that like lucas lost all the money in atlantic city so they like are fucked now and they're going to become a franchise and they won't be able to like hang out and discuss their love lives and dance around and put on guar and uh, alex as you were saying it's a parable of the coming 21st century. Yeah. This and You've Got Mail are a really good pairing.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a parable in like both what is coming which is like your sexless corporate music store is not going to have any space for like the people that make this stuff interesting and so this is sort of a bummer and then that scene where Joe comes down the stairs and he yells because next week this is going to be a music town and I don't think they're going to allow dancing in music town is like a harbinger of just the 21st century (laughs) he's like announcing the 21st century is coming (laughs) and very appropriately characterizing it yeah
2: smogs no dance Dancing should play in the background as he descends the staircase in the record store like the two floor record store that he's going to buy for nine thousand (laughs) dollars
1: you know the 90s real estate in the 90s yeah this pairs well also real estate wise with the first wives club a very quick side note is that this is an Alan Moyle movie
0: who made pump up the Mm -hmm. volume which Mm -hmm. I think is so funny but also it's I don't know how to say the writer's name but it's uh, maybe Carol Heikenen who wrote Center Stage? What? Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. That's great. Which we're
0: going to do as a bonus soon. Okay, well, this movie makes less sense to me now. Anyway, yeah, these people love music and kids.
1: Teens! And kid
0: drama. <laughs> yeah. And teens with guns.
1: <laughs> yes. Gotta have a teen with a gun. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the great things about this movie, debatably the great thing about this movie, is that it takes place in a world where there is a space where teenagers. We're like, you know, everyone here, you could reasonably argue, is like 21 or under, have a place to like work out their shit in a non-scholastic fashion. And it's a workplace, but it's like a really, really nice workplace, Mm. it appears.
0: Yeah, I worked at like, not a record store, but I worked at a two-story spot in Portland, Maine that we used to jokingly when the hipster handbook came out called the hipster mall. And it was a comic book shop across the aisle from our bookstore, which was also a cafe and downstairs was a movie rental place. And then next to it was a music shop. Mm -hmm. And Just, like, this environment is very, very familiar. Like, this is where I worked out a lot of shit in my life from, like, 19 to 23.
1: And did you have, like, a sort of actual adult sort of on standby?
0: Yeah, there were a couple. Like, Mark and Liz High, who owned the bookstore, were, like, nice, cool, sober people who loved the talking heads. And if you're going to have anyone moderate the situation, that was, like, a great couple of people to do that. And then each of the stores had, like an elder who ran it and like it was very this is like it's kind of like fun and silly as this movie is sometimes
1: tell us of the mall Alex (laughs) tell us the tale of the mall the
0: dynamic is very very accurate where there was like one adult in ownership or management and then like a couple people who are like on the elder end of the spectrum meaning like maybe 28 (laughs) and then a bunch of people who were like teenagers to 23
1: yeah I do remember when I was 28 and working with teenagers and I was just like yes I do control the super. Secrets of the universe. I make left hand turns all the time.
2: <laughs> it's funny because I had two teen jobs. I worked at a grocery store from 13 to 18, which is very funny to me now. After that, I went to work in men's fashion. A job I almost got fired for for not being cool according to my boss <laughs> What? and uh, I didn't become cool until I was 39 <laughs> I see shades in like this is what it's like to be a teen that has a job in this movie for sure even though I worked in food retail and then clothing retail very different jobs but you know very similar in a lot of ways where yeah you work out a lot of stuff you fall in love with someone you've never actually spoken to before you tell your boss you're gonna tell her you love her your boss beats you up in the back room. All those things happened to me when I worked at a grocery store.
0: Yeah, sadly. <laughs> it's really true. I mean, it's like the so there was the hipster mall I talked about. There was the mall mall where I worked and a number of restaurants. I don't want to glamorize this because there were many things that I should have been doing when I was a teenager, like. I think sometimes, like being involved in more stuff at school or whatever. Like there are a number of things I didn't do in order to work at those places.
1: Alex, I was incredibly involved at school the entire time and I regret it deeply. Like, my God. (laughs) I just want
0: to be mindful of the fact that like my contributions to capitalism sometimes it feels like happened at a loss of some other things. But like these places, the workplace for me was so much more fundamental in my understanding how the world worked socially and in other ways as well more than high school like much much more than high school was like this was like a place where I'd convene with I felt like real actual people
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean I think it's where you learn about your limits I mean not to harken back to my own work I feel like I'm, like, bragging about my work. but And then Jim Boston's piece in Spin Magazine, I, you know, I, it's sort of written in the backdrop of the grocery store I worked in. And then by the time this comes out, I will also have a piece up in the Riot Fest, the music festival they have a uh, magazine, and I will have a piece up in that about the grocery store radio and that sort of environment and the ways in which I learned infinitely more. I mean, like, I didn't graduate high school, so maybe I'm not the go-to voice on... what you experienced in school, because I was not there for large portions of it. But all the lasting lessons I learned in my life were the lessons I learned working jobs, contributing to capitalism in one way or another, when I was, you know, under the age of 22. And then everything above that is just a Mm write-off.
1: Well, and I would argue that performance in school is also a contribution to capitalism. And so as a teenager, your only autonomy is like, which contribution to capitalism are you prioritizing? Because you can't really get out of it.
0: Right. Like one is like, how will you become a worker? And the other one is working.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And what kind of worker will you be? And then also, you know, I mean, I'm surprised how the college admissions scandal basically gets taught everyone to make fun of Lori Loughlin and not the fact that like prestige in American colleges is an almost entirely imaginary concept mm. and generated to continue to jack up the cost of something whose benefit has remained stagnant and has actually decreased in the past decades.
0: But that phenomenon was never once Aunt Becky.
1: It's true. So, like, yes, good point, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) It just wasn't. You just know the American consumer. That's the thing about you. (laughs) Sorry, what were you saying, Nico?
2: (laughs) I was just going to say college comes up sort of later in the plot. And I do think thinking of the college admission process... This harkens back to an America where you could change the college that you're going to go to in the afternoon between telling the woman that you love that you love her, uh, her shooting you down.
1: Like that frivolous bitch Felicity.
2: Just like you spend 15 minutes on the phone in the afternoon between being shot at and (laughs) having an outdoor party. And you just call your college and just say, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. And they say, okay. These teens
1: have so much energy. I actually (laughs) assumed that AJ had no college plans and that he decided to go to art school and I, I was thinking about it this time. I was like, God, you guys, this is like a lot of life choices to be making before you've even kissed or anything. And then B, yeah. <laughs> I was like, is AJ just like, I, I have decided to find an art school in Boston to go to. And um, I guess I'll figure it out. I'll find one and I'll go there. And like, by gum, he will.
0: To Nico's curiosity earlier about who is what age, like, Mm -hmm. I guess I could see AJ being in in perhaps his early 20s because I went to college in a number of false starts and I didn't start seriously going to Mm -hmm. college until I was like 20.
1: Yeah, there are many ways to go to college.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, He references his rent being raised at one point. And when I was recently rewatching it, I was like, I had this thing in my head was like, you're not a teenager because a teenager, even when the rent was raised, when I was a teenager living out of the house, the rent being raised or lowered registered a lot less. Like it wasn't a thing I was casually telling people in conversation. Mm. You know, if Mm. my boss was to say like, oh, do you want to work extra hours? I wouldn't say, oh, they've raised my rent. So to be more fiscally responsible, (laughs) yes, I would take on more responsibility around the store. I wasn't saying that. I was just saying, okay. And I was dealing with the consequences two days after they happened to me. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, yeah.
1: So AJ's like, what, do you think, maybe like 23?
2: I think AJ's <laughs> 31 years old. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's old enough for when he dances shirtless in the store for it to be an even more questionable
2: situation. <laughs> AJ looks like he remembers when Beatlemania happened. <laughs> like... <laughs>
1: AK actually played with the Beatles once in Hamburg. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: There's
0: also that part where that guy who is like the son of the owner comes in and he was talking about how his beatnik dad bought this shop. And I realized, because like the shop is open in 59, that makes sense, but I thought they were talking mm-hmm. about Joe. And I
2: was like, wait a second. <laughs> is, <laughs> <laughs> is Joe like Fairland Getty's age?
1: <laughs> very possible.
2: Well, the beauty thing about Joe is that he is also ageless. Joe could also, like, I knew kids in high school school that trust like joe because they had watched goodfellas the night before raided their dad's (laughs) closet and were like this is me now like joe has such big this is me now energy like (laughs) here's what i know about myself i play the drums i have a child that i've adopted who i will beat up in front of his co-workers (laughs) and that's it these are the two things oh my ex-wife left me for another woman at gunpoint that's the only other thing we learn about joe over the course of the movie
1: these things aren't funny but nico is funny That's my explanation for laughing at this.
2: (laughs) To your point, I wore my
0: dad's bookie suit to a dance when I was in high school. Like my dad's like mobster bookie suit from like the 60s. I wore that to to high school Like, because all we had for clothes was like his weird old (laughs) stuff from literally 30 or 40 years ago. So I was like one of those like out of time teenagers where people were like, what is happening here? Why is he like this?
1: This is something my mom always complained about when I was younger and I was like, whatever, old lady. And now I'm like, she was right. Is how like when you're watching a movie set in 1955, right? Like often the set dressers will be like, everything is from 1950 fucking five. And she was like, as someone who was around in the 50s, people didn't redecorate their entire houses every year like if it was the 50s you'd have pieces from like the 40s or the 30s lying around like
0: yeah like all the cars are from 1950 like everyone just bought yes. a brand new car and didn't just have like a total shitbox. box <laughs> yeah we all
2: drive <laughs> brand new cars yeah
0: yeah why this movie like why do we think that this movie is a movie that when i tweeted about it that we were going to cover it people lost their minds
2: mm-hmm. it is indescribable like i love this i know it's going to be hard because we've been like taking every part of it and placing it on the table and pointing and laughing at it right up until now. But I like legitimately have a lot of love for this movie Mm. and I've loved it since I was a kid. Like I saw it when it came out on VHS and I rented it from the video store from 38 famous video, which was straight up right up the street from my house next to the bowling alley. And I just remember like being enraptured by the cover and thinking like, this is the movie, this is the movie that will remember like when you would see a movie and be like, this is what will define me. That this is about to become my yeah, identity. I'm gonna carry a briefcase mm, to school mm. tomorrow. I'm briefcase. Mm-hmm. Joe also, by the way, sort of seems like a kid that had a briefcase that he brought to school. But when you open the briefcase, <laughs> it had one of those pool cues that you have to screw together. Yeah,
1: I felt yeah, that way about sure. fame. Yeah, when I saw it, where it was like, finally a new and an innovative way of being a teenager.
2: <laughs> finally, an identity I can lose myself.
1: Yeah. In.
2: (laughs) For me, this was a movie that I felt seen in in multiple different ways for the first Mm. time and I had this experience where like I felt seen and I felt like there was a world in which I could find myself and belong. This isn't true for everyone, but like for me as a trans woman, I knew myself at a very young age. I knew when I was like seven years old that something was wrong my mom used to be a professional horseback rider and she had all her gear and when she quit horseback riding she kept it all like in pristine condition and I would always wear it around the house and it felt like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is where I belong is like in my mom's horseback riding gear. And she always just thought it was cute. And now when we talk about it, between that and me having a total nervous breakdown when she made me go to Boy Scouts when I Mm -hmm. like freaked out Mm -hmm. uh, and had to be removed (laughs) because I refused to accept Mm -hmm. the outfit. So, you know, like I was really sort of struggling to find my identity it's funny, but it's also true that I think when you're young, you sort of absorb cultural pieces. as like, well, this is what's going to form me, right? Like this is, I'm this sort of amorphous blob and I need a mold that's mm. going to hold me together long enough until I figure my shit out. And then the mold can be removed and I can go forward. Uh, and when I watched this movie, I was like, oh, here's the mold. This is it. This is me. And Liv Tyler was this character in the movie specifically where I was like, I don't know if I am like raptured by her or if I want to actually be this person and that was a really confusing mm. thing for me and it really flipped this switch which is funny because watching it now as a person that has been out for a number of years I watched it the other day and I was like oh it wasn't Liv Tyler at all it was Deb. Mm-hmm. Dab mm. is the character that was me, but I wasn't able to sort of vocalize that because she's framed as like, oh, she's troubled and she tried to kill herself because there's all, every character is an archetype. You know how a lot of movies are always like, well, this is just Shakespeare rewritten. Like everything yeah. is Taming of the Shrew in one way or another. Right. This movie is kind of like, well, these are all the discarded Shakespeare bits that, <laughs> that somebody found on like the floor of Shakespeare's childhood cabin.
1: <laughs> Shakespeare ends in pieces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly,
2: right? Like this is just like this pastiche of Shakespearean throwaway that they turned <laughs> into a movie because as a whole like to look at it as a as a movie like as a piece of cinema the plot doesn't make sense the characterization is confusing the love story straight up makes no sense at all like if you took the two people with the least like i would buy Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger getting yeah. together more than i would
1: they have scenes together
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have scenes they literally spend time together like also, I you know, like as somebody that has done this, just never get into a relationship with somebody you work with mm-hmm. as a teenager. Your relationship outside of work is very different oh, than the relationship man. you have under the heel of your boss at work. Yeah, your yeah. career
1: comes first. <laughs> <laughs> For sure.
2: Sorry to everyone I worked
0: with at Super Salad when I was 18.
1: But how is it spelled? Is it soup apostrophe R salad? It's soup S O U P
0: E R. Super. Super. Okay salad. Anyway, I dated a co-worker, and it wasn't great for people sometimes.
2: And we all walk into those situations with the best of intentions.
1: That's such a good point.
2: And then we all make the break room awkward for, like, a week.
0: And speaking of the things that that was speaking to for you, was Lucas's existential speech about how we all have something wrong with us
2: big for you? Because I remember that being real big for me. <laughs> yeah, like, definitely that. I think what's with today today, I've thought that literally every day of my life, ever since the first time I saw this movie, like, Which speaks to the timeless power of it, is like, if I say what's with today today to somebody and they don't get it, we will never be
1: friends. (laughs) (laughs) But like, what is with today today?
0: I was a big Lucas when I was a kid.
1: I mean, I think that you are the person who, in the best case scenario, Lucas grew up to be.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is the most flattering shit. Thank you. You are you like you do have big Lucas energy like in a very nice way. Right?
1: <laughs> you could wear a turtleneck and see how how that goes for reminding people of the film. I imagine, yeah.
2: I'll give it a shot. <laughs> well, because Lucas is the audience stand in, right? Like mm-hmm. Lucas mm. is sort of our lens into
1: this. He's are like our Ferris Bueller, right?
2: <laughs> he kind of is because he kind of narrates it. Like he breaks the fourth wall mm-hmm. once, like towards the end, right when he says "perfect," no, "almost perfect," or whatever yeah. that, that like that one line it's like where he like kind of winks at the camera and it's like oh okay so this is uh story it wasn't introduced this way but sure i'm on this road at the very end
1: which is another shakespeare thing right because in shakespeare there's always a dude who i wonder how often this person was played by shakespeare himself who was like hello this is my play that's <laughs> how people talk you know
2: it's funny because there's a musical <laughs> there was supposed to be a musical of empire records that got railroaded by the pandemic mm. uh, so it hasn't been created yet but i do hope that they do like the lucas character should sort of come out and introduce us and they be like Two families Right Whatever the opening to Romeo I was in Romeo and Juliet In high school you think I would remember this But of course
0: Lucas should be the stage manager From our town
1: Two families each alike In Dignity In Fair Verona Where we lay (laughs) our scene Maybe Something like that Yeah Yeah
0: yeah 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 When did you
2: realize That it was not Liv It was Deb Two weeks ago Literally (laughs) I hadn't watched it in a long time Because I like When I was younger I watched it a lot And I think I watched it Right when I came out Which was I don't know Five or six years ago now and it felt differently for me at the time and I was able to sort of vocalize this thing to myself of like, oh, I was like going through some shit. It's one of those movies that I know, like I know every line off my heart. Mm-hmm. And then when I was re-watching it a couple of weeks ago and I got to the scene where Deb goes into the bathroom and shaves her head to uh, that song Free.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And I got super emotional uh, and I was really like, Oh, like the power of that scene where, you know, she's clearly very frustrated with something within herself, with a dissatisfaction with her place in the world and the way the world moves around her. Like I was reading all these things into her character and her character became so much more realized to me in that moment. Mm. And then later when she reveals she tried to kill herself, trigger warning, I guess, for the brief moment of a suicide and then a fake funeral in this. Yeah, That really sort of made sense to me as a rewatch of like, of course, like I was in that same boat. I was trying to find a way out of the situation I was in and I didn't have a better idea than that and so maybe this is what I do or maybe you know I will do a drastic physical change you know like I had shaved my head before and I had done all that stuff when I was at a loss with what to do with myself because I wasn't really sure how to fix the situation that I was in Mm -hmm. so it's funny like Deb is a character that is on screen three times Hmm. you know she's barely in the movie she does her taxes in the listening booth with a computer that she brought in there i guess or maybe a typewriter hard to say that's not to overthink adding
1: (laughs) machine yeah she's got an advocate (laughs) in there and
2: she's she's sitting on the floor doing her taxes right next to two people that are having sex Mm -hmm. good for them live your bliss
1: deb doesn't give a shit
2: (laughs) i love though that like her suicide
0: storyline is and i don't want to underplay it but like it's revealed that it was like a relatively half-hearted attempt but it's an attempt in that she clashes around to everyone, but also just does not want anyone... Like, that's such a relatable thing where she's like, look at this, and then she's like, I don't want you to look at this. Yeah. And that yeah. tension between those two things is so fucking real. And I also love, which is so real to the, like, work environment that I described earlier that I I had worked at, this idea that they do this fake funeral to, like, wake her up or, like, show her sort of what, what she'd be missing. And A, she's just like, okay, I'll do it. And B... <laughs> It turns into a conversation between Corey and Gina mm-hmm. about their yes. shit. It's so fucking perfect that it's like, we're going to intervene,
2: but it's about us. Really. <laughs> we're going to go to your funeral and talk about ourselves until they close the casket. Which, to
1: be fair, that is what people do at funerals, so...
2: the funerals that I've been to in my life I generally have not talked about the person that is dead at the front of the room because you're just avoiding (laughs) the conversation you're like
1: well that's taken care of so any look at that bitch
2: (laughs) we'll meet up for wings in a week and then we'll have a super awkward conversation about our friend that's no longer alive that's my experience with that situation that is absolutely right
1: right Deb
2: is like if Lucas is the audience stand in and Deb is the cry for help like she literally Mm. wraps bandages around her wrists in such an obvious manner where she doesn't want to talk about it but it's the nobody asked me about my cast situation where it's like clearly I want to actually talk about what's going on under here but you need to you really need to like drag this horse to water and I will do it yeah it was a lady back it was a little plastic razor with moisturizing strip
0: it's really fascinating what they do with it because she's like don't ask me about it and then Joe asks about it and is like should I call your mother which is (laughs) Usually probably not the best Mm -hmm. go-to, but, and then she's like, if you can find her number. So it's like this mechanism through which you can be like, I can't even communicate with my mother. That's
1: for the studio exec who is like, what's her problem?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you want to talk with people about a thing, but like, you don't know how to talk with people about a thing, that weird purgatory that occurs where you're like, you know, can you please address this thing, but also don't look at me ever.
2: Yes it's funny because it is kind of a poorly written movie that actually has really good characters in it like almost purely Mm. by accident like Deb is a good character that I think was never really intended to be part of the movie where they were just like we need another woman that's not as hot as Liv Tyler or Renee Zellweger uh, in like the traditional sense so let's make her a punk kid that shaves her head, and she's actually the most beautiful one of them all in the movie but you know we're not going to talk about that because we have this whole weird storyline where one teen tries to have sex with the old guy and then the other teen actually does which is just sort of not really properly addressed.
1: That's a weird scene, too. Let's talk about that for a second, if we may. Yeah, sure. So here's my interpretation anyway. Liz Tyler wants to have a magical virginity losing with Rex Manning, and he basically treats it as just another groupie blowjob, and she's like... No. <laughs>
0: she wants to show him her sturdy cotton panties. That's what she wants to do. Yeah.
1: She knows how she's being sexualized by the industry. She's been in her dad's videos <laughs> by now, I think, probably.
2: Yeah, three of them. Well, she's discovered who her dad
1: is a couple of years before. It's a lot of information, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, Liv Tyler just, I feel like in movies at this time, is always playing someone who's a little bit too pure for this world, which is why she's such good casting in The Lord of the Rings. So I feel like this moment makes sense, partly because you know in your heart that she meant to, like, have her first time be with some kind of medieval prince (laughs) in a castle filled with brambles. So then Renee Zellweger, who has, you know, been taking guff for being the bimbo of the movie this entire time, tries to comfort Corey and is like, we'll find another guy. And Corey slut shames her. And Gina is like, well, now I'm going to have sex with Rex Manning. And so she does. And then like their coworkers are outside the room where this is happening, the count room, I think. And then when they exit, they like, are all just like dead silent and it's like they act like Gina has killed someone.
2: Until AJ breaks the silence by trying to beat the shit out of Rex Manning.
1: Which, why not?
2: The sexual politics of that scene are very interesting. (laughs) But interestingly, he's not attacking him because he's just had sex with a child in the break room. He's attacking him because he's annoyed that Rex Manning was going to have sex with a girl that he likes. Like AJ's motivations is kind of unclear in that scene, but I I don't get the feeling that he's doing it altruistically because he's being protective of all the women in the store so much as he's being possessive of one woman in particular no and then that's when everyone decides to turn on rex who they've been blowing
0: smoke for this whole time and they're all just like you are actually bad we don't like you
1: yeah and they're like how dare you have sex with gina and it's like i mean i would hope that gina would have better taste but honestly it's her business and whatever why not who cares right
2: yeah she has agency in this situation she's made the decision she's choosing to do this yeah she's choosing to piss off her friend yeah right she refers to herself as a turbo slut. That's her self-reference when Liv Tyler takes her bra off and puts it at the table. and. Right. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs>
2: a thing you casually do without taking your shirt off and without any sort of... Like, Liv Tyler's, both her arms are visible.
1: I started wearing bras entirely so I could take them off from underneath the sweater because Flashdance was my model for womanhood. (laughs) It really says a lot in this movie that the, like, pure chaste virginal character is, like, also still perfectly happy to take her bra off at a pizzeria.
2: For their maybe co-worker guy to say, you forgot your thing.
0: Yeah. And so this like really just becomes an opportunity for them to fight for like a minute. And then for Liv Tyler to realize that she would like to have the confidence to to sleep with Rex Manning, I guess. She's like, I like somebody who's so themselves like a Gina.
2: Her like discovery that she actually loves AJ towards the end of the movie. Because she tried to have sex with Rex Manning and that didn't like, she had this ideal person that she wanted to have her first time with, and that didn't work out. So then she discovered this the spirit of true love mm-hmm. somewhere off screen, somewhere. Maybe because AJ almost got shot by blanks that. Warren, his name's not fucking Warren, Mm. was shooting into the store, which after the first one, I would be like, oh, there's clearly no bullets in this gun. Okay, we're safe. (laughs) But that's another plot hole that we it's best not to think too deeply about.
1: I wish we had had a sort of 10 things I hate about you like scene where we just get to see Corey, like listening to some music and feeling thoughtful about love for like literally 25 seconds. That's all I would have needed, because I feel like there's already so much of that in this movie. And also, I realized while watching this for this episode, because I hadn't seen it in years, but this is a time capsule memory movie for me because I watched it with my new roommate my first week of college. So it's just like this time capsule of that moment in time for me. And I was like, oh, my God, this movie was where I first heard Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits.
2: Yeah, it's so good.
1: That alone, it makes it emotionally very significant.
2: That scene is really beautiful, too. Like yeah. I don't know. There's something really beautiful with the Romeo and Juliet scene, a song that is not on the official movie soundtrack, by the way. Boo. It's also funny to me that in a movie that is set in a record store that is so much around music, that music doesn't drive the plot.
1: That's a really good point. Mm-hmm.
2: Other than say no more, more more, which is like another MacGuffin that is introduced that kind of doesn't really need to be in the movie, but I guess does because Rex Manny needs to be a character, mm-hmm. even though his character is of very little consequence in this cut of the movie there is an alternate cut of the movie where he actually comes back mm. oh. also with
1: a gun <laughs>
2: <laughs> no he has a conversation with Burko out back because Burko huh. is walking around carrying his guitar slung in front of him which my fiance is a furious about as a guitar player because she's like you don't walk around with your guitar slung in front of you like that that's just not a thing anybody does but they have a conversation out back where rex manning looks at burko's guitar and they have this conversation about how rex manning comes to realize that he is in fact washed up and you know he says something about how the record label wouldn't let him play his own instrument on his records anymore and he had become this sort of like victim of the machine and he knew Mm. that he had sort of lost himself in this process in the whole nine yards and he then reoccurs at the end of the movie when the rock band is playing when coyote shivers band is playing on the roof Mm -hmm. he plays a rock version of say no more money more on the roof with coyote shivers
1: band Wow. I would love to see the version of Empire Records that is apparently as long as The Irishman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Snyder cut of, of Empire Records. Yeah.
1: Oh my God, that's all I want.
0: <laughs> I mean, it is interesting that music is not a driving force in the plot but also just like the movie was a little late to the conversation but like the conversation about selling out Mm -hmm. in the machine and like the various inevitabilities that would come with these various concessions etc that's like so much at the fore of this movie that it feels like a good substitution for the fact that like music itself is not the actual
2: driver Mm -hmm. of the plot
1: well and it's about what's going to happen to the music industry actually
2: the problem in this movie is capitalism right all along the real capitalism was the friends we made along the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The fact that we've been having a pandemic for two years now, I guess, sort of compounds this problem in a surreal way. But, you know, aside from that, like, like, what is a record store, right? It's a place where you can purchase music but it's also a place where you can be and where teenagers can work and like figure out how to deal with their problems and proclaim their love to each other and try to lose their virginities and hold mock funerals for each other and get high and watch guar (laughs) and you know it's in the things that have happened to various industries we've lost those spaces Mm -hmm. and actually there's a really good episode of decoder ring about the fact that in you've got mail fox books is the enemy fox books is clearly based on i think the barnes and noble on the upper west side (laughs) that opened in the 90s and which was then run into the ground obviously by amazon and it's now really funny to think of the idea of any physical bookstore being the top dog in a situation and how joe fox is like people will love our bookstore where they can sit in a chair and drink coffee and it's like i miss sitting in a chair and drinking coffee
2: <laughs> people will love our bookstore where they can use the bathroom before they go to the
1: movies very important yeah that, i seriously i remember this when i was first going to new york again like around 18 like this time capsule period for me i learned that like you count accessible bathrooms in terms of where is the nearest Barnes and Noble. And it was very helpful.
0: I also, one time at that border, so much of my formative memories are at this mall area. Exactly,
1: That's the thing. <laughs> and um,
0: there was a guy who was there who like looked the part of what I'm about to describe, but he was there with his girlfriend and they looked like they had maybe not taken a shower in a while. Like they were on the road in one way or another and I, t- I talked with him and he looked at me and just immediately started crying at my shirt. And then he explained that he was one of, and I don't know if this is true, it does not matter. He explained how he was one of Bradley Knoll's <laughs> like drug addicted friends and was like ultimately a pallbearer at his funeral. Oh my God. And was ball like bawling in the store and showed his girlfriend and then she started yeah. to cry. It was a fascinating thing. And then I was like, do you want this shirt and we traded shirts in the borders and he was so like sort of put oh, out God. and it was just like it's been so hard like we haven't been home in such a long time like we're in portland maine this guy <laughs> who was at bradley knoll's funeral Aww. potentially as a pallbearer and i gave him the shirt that i had and he gave me his shirt which was a silver sparkly button-up shirt
1: oh nice i was gonna yeah. ask you what his shirt was did it fit you it did not <laughs> He
0: was a real medium and I was a real extra large.
2: <laughs> He's a real medium. I thought he was gonna have a real hunter for sure. I thought that's how that ended. That would be great.
0: <laughs> Did you spend time at mall, Sarah? You, your mall is closing.
1: I loved the mall. I mean the, yeah, the thing my mall is closed. I think it's closed by now, the Lloyd Center Mall. I had a different experience because that my mall memories are most often that when I was a kid in the summer, I would get my dad to take me to the mall. Because then he could sit somewhere and I could go do mall stuff and that it was a way of Hmm. like minimizing labor for my dad while also technically being surveilled. And this idea that like a mall was a relatively safe place for a child. Yeah. And it was great because malls are great places to dissociate in, you
0: know. You don't have to be fully engaged at the mall. No.
1: And you get sort of like digested through it. And I have, I mean, this mall is still around. I haven't been there in years, but when I used to work or go to school in downtown Portland, I would often like the sort of downtown bus mall is at Pioneer Place Mall and often like buy some kind of a fast fashion, like biz cash under tank or something that I needed while I was waiting for the bus. And just like, I don't know, I guess malls have always been like friendly time killing spaces for me. And like, a cruel world. <laughs> That's how I feel about them.
2: Were you a mall bound? No, because I didn't. I kind of grew up. Well, I, we had a mall, but so because I, I grew up in the Yukon, and we didn't really have like we didn't have a mall in the sense that you would think about it when you think of like I think a mall really conjures to mind a specific thing that has like a food court and has all this stuff. And we had a mall, but it was. You know, it was owned by like the local family who owned half the town. Oh. Hmm. Which is like the exact stereotype of the Yukon that you would think of as like one rich family owns everything. And it was true. Like they named the mall after themselves. <gasps> and we had two kind of malls, but both of them were kind of like you could walk through them in an afternoon. The clothing store I worked in was in one of them. So I didn't really have that experience the same way. It's probably why I became an alcoholic when I was really young is because we had no other option.
1: Right. That's what a totally. lack of malls will do to kids.
2: I think if I had a mall and if I had a place exactly like you say, like to disassociate because now like, you know, I live in Toronto and I would eventually just get to go out and go to other cities and go to the mall. And I remember being like, oh, this is what I was missing because Mm. there's something here because you sort of get this like broad overview of society as a whole. The society that exists around you, I think, is like parceled out at a mall where you, Mm -hmm. you know, you will walk by an H&M and they Mm -hmm. will be playing, you know, the top 20 hits of the moment and they will have a specific vibe. And, you know, it'll always smell faintly like popcorn, even though there's no discernible place selling popcorn. You don't really know where the smell is coming from, but it's there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And like, (laughs) you know, malls have this sort of vibe that I really appreciate now as an old person, not an old, an older person, I should say. People get mad at me when I say an old person when I'm 40. The thing about Empire Records that I think about and sort of this environment that it works in, and I think maybe a thing that gets glossed over when people, especially, like, at the time when critics were talking about this movie is, it is actually like a really interesting pastiche because it kind of could be anywhere. Right. You know, the way everybody interacted with each other and the relationships they had with each other, that's the relationships I had with people at the grocery store I worked at, which again was a locally owned place, but, like, you know, we had this sort of safety net to sort of push all our individual boundaries. I wouldn't have grown up to be the person that I am if I hadn't worked in that grocery store for four years Mm -hmm. where, like, my boss once threatened to fire me because I took a three and a half hour, 15 minute coffee break. But I was just like, <laughs> discovering what i was capable of and what i was capable of getting away with right and also like how much work could i do and be intoxicated i discovered that at a really young age like i discovered right. all of my boundaries and all of the way to interact with people and to relate to people mm-hmm. they all happened in that zone and you know like the empire records thing is funny because it could kind of be anything it could be a clothing store it could be a grocery store it could be whatever the background of it matters less and that's the funny thing to me is like If the music drove the plot more in this movie, I would understand why it's a record store, but it kind of doesn't make sense. Like the music mattered more to me in a grocery store than it would in a record store. Hmm. So it is interesting to me that that is the backdrop they chose because I think they just wanted it to be, it's a very 90s thing where it's like the coolest place you could work is a record store. Right. Oh, and speaking to what you were saying, Nika, about like
0: about testing your boundaries, there's that part where Joe says to Gina, I haven't fired anyone yet today. Why would I start with you? Or something along those lines, (laughs) which is great because like everyone has earned being fired on this day (laughs) and they still work there. I earned being
2: fired many times more than I got fired. The safety that they have under Joe is very real to me because I had a boss like that, that was very protective of me. Like it was very clear. Like I was kind of in need of stewardship and she was like kind of protective of me in a way that like kind of shielded me from like true consequence for my own actions or for the actions of other people around me. Uh, And I sort of see that with Joe where he's like, I mean, he's a literal father figure to Lucas, which is, I think, how he gets away with taking him into the office and beating him up so much so that he has to give him something, a cold compress to put on his eye mm-hmm. after he like, takes a round out of him in the back room. Which my boss did to me when I was a teenager and wasn't my dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of safety net that he sort of casts on people where, like you say, you know, he says, I haven't fired anybody today, why would I start with you? Because everybody is sort of like fucking around and getting away with it, not really doing a whole lot. AJ's gluing quarters to the floor, it doesn't have to explain start to Warren. You know, it's an interesting environment where everybody kind of doesn't really have any sort of discernible reason for being there other than to sort of be there under the umbrella of Joe, like, it's very clearly a place where everybody feels safer than they do at home or in their own respective Mm -hmm. environments or whatever. Like, nobody really needs to be there, but they're all there all the time. And that's, like, just such a fascinating thing to me. Well, it's a beautiful place to work, too,
0: because, like, I think, like, one of the things, like, I always wanted as a teenager, which I would either find on early internet stuff or out in the world wherever you could find it is like people to just acknowledge that i was not a child mm-hmm. or to not mm-hmm. condescend and often like a place that i found that was in those working environments with other people who wanted that too but didn't quite know what that looked like yet and it was a matter of like sorting out what exactly that could look and feel like yeah mm-hmm.
2: the only person he condescends to once is deb and he says do you want me to call your mom yeah <laughs> I think mean, because he just doesn't know what to Yeah. He's like, I don't know how to address this. This is a man at a loss when he's like, yeah. do you want a shiny toy? Shall I call your mother? Like, those. these are these are the only two recourses I have left in this situation because I've lost control of the plot here. I didn't give this movie a
0: super fair chance when it first came out because I thought that there... Yeah, I was a snub and I thought that liking Days and Confused was like better.
1: Yeah, because when you're a teenager, like you imagine movies are in gladiator matches against each other all the time.
0: Exactly. Well, especially when they when they share an
2: actor too. Oh yeah. Well they share two actors too, because the pizza guy was in Days and Confused as well. Well th- yeah. in theory this movie share is in direct conversation with The Lord of the Rings. I <laughs> think we can all agree
1: right. that Empire
2: Records and The Lord of the Rings.
1: Well, it's true. They're both about Liv Tyler and a guy who needs a shower.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, w- <laughs> it wasn't until like I
0: had these experiences that I was like, oh, I get this movie, and I like this movie a whole lot, and I love these people, and I always get on the verge of tears to actually tearing up when Gina sings her song, like every single time. <laughs>
2: when Gina sings with Coyote,
0: every time I get shaky.
2: Canadian superstar, Coyote Shivers, probably best known for being in this movie. Very briefly, being married to Baby Buell for two years. So starring in a movie with his stepdaughter, with whom he was supposed to be, I think he's supposed to work there. His motivations are also extremely unclear. (laughs) I think he's supposed to be Deb's boyfriend. Really? They have had some sort of situation between the two of them, which has caused her to try to kill herself. And then he's just sort of there at work, never really does anything, has a guitar. So you know he's in a band because all guys like them, like you to know that they can play the guitar. They're in a rock band. If his leather vest, no shirt ensemble hasn't taught you anything. What if
1: he's (laughs) the resident condescending guy? Like, what if the insurance is like you need one condescending guy your record store and it's like having a fire extinguisher
2: oh yeah have you heard sonic youth are you sure you don't want to buy every sonic Youth CD we have in the store other than what you're buying right Mm -hmm. now i forget the guy's last name charlie cochran that was it who
0: was the guy at tower records when i was 12 years old and went in to be like hey can i get a tool record and he was like how about locust abortion technician by the butthole surfers and he put that in my hand This man put that in my hand and there was another Sonic Youth record. And I was like, that's it from here on out. Thanks thanks to that guy. Life is different forever now, I guess. Life is different forever now. Thank you so much.
1: You know what I bought at Tower Records when I was 12? What was it? Was it Lucas Abortion Technician? (laughs) It was... The soundtrack to Flashdance.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. That's
2: perfect. (laughs) I mean, of course.
0: I did not realize until this very quick Wikipedia look up, and this just must be Canadian knowledge, everyone must know this, that our friend Coyote Shivers made the Kids in the Hall theme song.
2: What? Yeah, he was in Shadowy Man on a Shadowy Planet. What? What? (laughs) He is also, I think it sort of needs to be said, that Coyote Shivers has been... Charged with domestic abuse by almost every romantic partner he's ever had. Oh, okay.
1: Well. Oh, goddamn it, Coyote shivers. I know we had such high hopes yeah.
2: for him. He he wrote Sugar High. Oh, Coyote, come on. If you were a teen in 1995. You knew Sugar High by Coyote Shivers. You
1: couldn't get away from Sugar High by Coyote Shivers.
2: It had its own dance. We all knew the moves. (laughs)
1: Al Gore did it. Remember that joke he made about doing the Sugar High by Coyote Shivers dance at the DNC? Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
0: All right, so we know (laughs) that Joe is the dad of the record store. Yes. Joe's the father of the record store. He's father records.
1: He's the dad of Lucas, legally. He's Papa Records. Where they sell vinyls,
0: as the store says. Who uh, is the daddy?
2: Lucas. I think Lucas is because he's just like, becomes this mystical being. AJ at one point refers to him as, you're like the guy in the karate kid. He said, yesterday you were normal and today you're the Asian guy in the karate kid. Mm. Problematic phrasing aside... He does kind of have this like remember when Fred Flintstone would have a bowling ball fall on his head and he would become a different person? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I forgot about that. (laughs) I gotta watch
1: the Flintstones again
2: you know, he is sort of seeing people for who they are and he is helping them discover themselves and shepherding them in a way and trying to be protective. And he's also like, he's got a sexual energy that is unplaceable. Like, Yeah, mm. he sure does. I can't tell if he's supposed to be queer or straight. It doesn't really matter. He's got like kind of a queer energy and that's not just because he's wearing a tight black turtleneck the entire time <laughs> and he's not Steve Jobs. Like he's uh, like a younger gayer Steve Jobs basically in this movie. But he's also just like, he has this daddy energy that is, that is very... It's comforting. Lucas is a comfort where I found him annoying the first time I watched this movie. I was like, well, who is this guy? And then upon subsequent rewatches, I'm like, oh no, I get Lucas. Mm. Sarah.
1: So I totally agree with you about Lucas. And this watching this made me think of how when I was growing up, or like when I was at probably about 16 specifically, 16, 18, Lucas and like Charlie Nwanda Dalton in the Dead Poet Society were both characters that I loved and identified with because I was like, I don't totally feel able to identify with a lot of the girl characters because often the price you pay for admission to an ensemble teen movie is being like unbelievably hot, you know. So in this one, they're like, here's the really hot, nice girl and the really hot bimbo and the really hot punk girl. (laughs) And it's like, okay. So it felt easier. to identify with the spirit of like the occasional teenage boy characters who were like these puck characters in the movie to speak of like the Shakespearean narrator. They were the ones who said like the really funny, smart ass things. And there were often characters like this who like didn't end up with a love interest really, but they were like in the friend group in a sort of comedy narrator way, which I was. So, I, yeah, I guess I always really loved those characters for that reason. And they made it look really cool to be that person. But in the interest of picking an additional person, I'm going to say Robin Tunney for her portrayal of Deborah, because as we've been saying, like, she you know, she doesn't have a ton of time in this movie. And the characters in this are like not <laughs> super developed, but like, I don't know, I guess the portrayal is really beautiful and feels Like, I think that she's acting a character who is able to come through as complex and real, even if the script isn't necessarily giving that material.
0: Mm hmm. These are great suggestions. I agree with them both. Mine, just because of my own personal experience, is the record store. It's like a third space. I wish we subsidized these things. Like, I wish we had these spaces. Like, naturally, I wish it was like a part of our culture to create these spaces and not have them be centers of commerce. Mm -hmm. But that's what I grew up with them being. And they were foundational for me in one way or another. And like, these were the places where I found like punk rock and these were the places where I found queer culture. And these were the places where I found adults who took me seriously. And these were the places where, I could get into like some organized danger as opposed to previous parts of my life, which were disorganized danger. <laughs> like these were all extremely formative places with people I have just like the very fondest memories of and some not fond memories of, but like I largely very, very fond memories. So like it as a place where people gather and that's like important for you know, becoming whatever you're on your way to becoming. I recognized a lot of that in this movie. I thought it was really great. I like that.
1: Yeah, I I think that's the first time anyone's chosen a building for the daddy. I really like that.
2: (laughs) We finally arrived at New York as the fifth character or whatever this (laughs) Yeah. You are good
0: is produced by Carolyn kendrick Thank you so much for making the episode sound great, Carolyn. They are edited by Miranda Zickler. Thanks so much for everything you do, Miranda. The beats that make our transition sound so great—they come to us by way of Fresh Lesh. Thank you for what you do, Lesh. Thanks to y'all for listening. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at You Are Good Pod. You can find us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash You Are Good. Remember, we have a Center Stage episode coming out relatively soon. You can find an episode-inspired playlist in the show notes along with links to t-shirts and to the music of You Are Good Volume 1. I think that's it for now. I think that's all I have to say. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for doing everything you do. You are good, my friend. Take good care.